Well, um, since most everyone has been here, uh, I'm not going to do a, a long review. I simply want to point out where we are. We're in Acts chapter 14. And remember, Acts is the unfolding of God's work and movement of the Holy Spirit through His people taking the Gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Which is where we are. We are the ends of the earth. And the whole point of what Luke is writing to Theophilus about is to say the same thing Jesus did and the same message that He preached continues after He's gone because He left it in the hands of the disciples who entrusted it to faithful men who would entrust it to other faithful men that would keep perpetuating the Gospel, drawing His people into the kingdom until He returned. And as we've been following through, remember, we saw a break really. Acts 1-12 through is really about the Jewish church, so to speak, where Peter was the primary character. It was Peter and the apostles. But primarily we read about Peter, Peter and John. And um, thank you. Peter and John. We read about the Jewishness is really a Jewish looking church. There weren't, there weren't Gentiles really in it. There were some Hellenistic Jews from outside of Israel. But from 1 to 12, that's what we see. But in Acts chapter really 10, we start to see a transition take place. Actually, we get a picture of it in chapter 9 where Paul, when he the, the great persecutor of the church, has a conversion experience. And the word given to Ananias about him was, he is my chosen instrument to take the message to my people and to who? The Gentiles. And then in Acts 10, what do we see? We see Peter go to Cornelius. And we see Cornelius converted and his family. Now Cornelius was a pagan, but you know, he would have been considered a God-fearer. Why? It's it said that he, you know, he he had he wasn't the only one. It seems like just about every centurion mentioned had a respect for the Jewish people, the ones mentioned in the Bible. They were people that would qualify as God fears. Maybe not to the point of circumcision where they actually became proselytes, but they certainly feared the Hebrew God, the God of Israel, the God of Jacob. And, and they had a respect. And they even helped build the synagogue in Capernaum. And so, we see this transition happen in 13 where Paul and Barnabas are now commissioned by Antioch, the church in Antioch, the big Antioch, not the Antioch of Pisidia, but the major city Antioch. It was the third largest city in the world. They, they had a church there and they commissioned Paul and Barnabas to take the Gospel and move further west toward where? Rome. Rome would have been considered the center of the universe at that point. Right? What country was Antioch? Turkey. Southern Turkey. So they were actually pushing across, but it wasn't easy. It was hard going into these areas. It was hard. Some of the cities they went to had synagogues. Some of them didn't. The Jews had been dispersed but they weren't, there weren't Jews everywhere. So some cities had synagogues, some didn't. But the ones that did, they went into the synagogues first. 
Why? Because that's what Christ said. They knew the law. They had the Torah. They had the prophets. They had the writings. So of course He would go there first. They should have known the prophecies. But it was hard. And we saw last week, remember, that Paul and Barnabas continued to fight and they walked with perseverance. We saw. Remember we talked about finishing our course well? And we looked at the marks of effective ministry. By the way, Acts is not an instructive book in the sense of like Galatians or Ephesians or even uh, Timothy or Titus. Those books are pastoral epistles or general epistles to churches that are instructive by Paul. Paul writes them. He says, here's the foundation for what you should be. Now this is what you should do. And he, he gives a lot of imperatives of what to go do. Acts is very different. Acts is historical. It really chronicles how the church began and then unfolded and pushed westward. And so, you got to keep that in mind. Otherwise, you can get into trouble like some denominations do where they take things out of context and they create theology out of history where there's no instruction and they make things normative that are not normative. And we talked a little bit about that last week when we talked about the miracles. Miracles ushered in certain times that God wanted to authenticate His people. It doesn't mean He doesn't do miracles today. But the greatest man according to Jesus in the Bible, Old Testament time period, really up, up until Jesus started His ministry, was who? John the Baptist. We don't know He did any miracles. But there are people today who say if you don't do miracles, you just don't have enough faith. And so, you got to be careful with Acts. And so, as we look at Acts, and we look at Paul and Barnabas, we, we kind of what we were trying to do is draw some of the characteristics we saw in them that we can apply to our life. Okay? So again, these are just reading through, and I think they come right out of the text. But we saw last week, the first thing we want to see, if you want to finish well, you got to walk with perseverance. Remember? We looked at that. They get kicked out of one town and they just keep going. They say, okay, we're not going to quit because we got kicked out of that town. They went right into the synagogue in the next town. And we saw them walk with perseverance. But the second thing we saw was they spoke with His passion. His meaning God's passion. They, when they went into a synagogue and spoke, they weren't doing it as a profession. When they went into the synagogue and spoke, they were Spirit-filled. They were Spirit-energized. And we saw that if we're going to finish well for God, if we're going to represent Him well and finish faithful, we need to speak with His passion. Let Him speak through us. Because if you try to build anything without His passion, it says unless the Lord builds the house, he who labors labors in vain. And so we speak with His passion when we go and we represent Him to people and put Him on display. Third, we saw that we served as His priest last week. Remember that? We're all priests, not just the professional pastor minister who gets paid and runs a church staff. The CEO model (laughs) that has been adopted in America was not a historical model of how the church operated. In fact... Up until, up until really about 300 A.D., the model was a plurality of elders and teachers that all, all would teach. 
different people who were leaders of the church would teach. And it was more about the Word than any one man. But now it's become pretty much about the guy. Oh, I go to that church because of that guy. He's the guy. Oh, oh you 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 got to meet our pastor. And, and it's all about him instead of about the Word. And so, it's really important that we understand that we all are priests. And we need to serve as priests and do what priests do. Priests serve their deity. Priests follow through on things that connect people who aren't really connected with the deity and help connect them to the deity. And people, the priests serve the deity to the people. That's what priests do. And then we saw finally last week that we walk by His Spirit. Paul and Barnabas, they get kicked out. Well, they don't get kicked out. Well, they get kicked out of uh, Antioch of Pisidia, but in Iconium, they were just wanting to kill them and persecute them. And so Paul says, okay, we're done. We're going on. There's a time to go on. And the Spirit told him it's time to go on. And back in Matthew, Jesus told disciples, listen, they persecute you in one town, go to another one, flee to the next, and keep sharing the gospel until it goes through all the towns. So those were four characteristics we saw last week. This week, we're going to look at four more as we look at verses 8 through 20, really. I told you to read 8 through 18, but I I included 20. We're going to go ahead and look at 8 through 20. But but I want you to keep in mind what was going on with Paul and Barnabas. In Cyprus, no response to the Gospel that we know of. In Paphos, they had one guy, Sergius Paulus, that we know of. And remember what happened there. Elemis the magician got in their face, was, was hot, saying things against them. It wasn't fun. And then John Mark leaves. So this, this could be very discouraging. They go to Antioch of Pisidia and the Jews reject them. Of course, the Gentiles get excited. But the very people that the Gospel was sent for to be the messengers and the priests to the rest of the world, rejected. And then they kicked him out of Antioch of Pisidia. And then they basically got kicked out of Iconium. And now in Lystra today, in this text today, what we're going to see is a healing of a lame man, a man who had been born lame. His whole, he'd been lame from birth. Does that sound familiar? You heard about a guy having that happen before? Where? Acts chapter 3, Peter and John walk into the temple. There's a lame guy wanting money. He's not asking to be healed. And they're healing. Why? Did did that happen before them? Did something like that happen prior to them? Yeah, where else? John chapter 5. Jesus walking in the temple. Did that guy ask Jesus to be healed? In fact, he told Jesus he couldn't be healed because he didn't have anybody to put him in the water. All three men, none of them asked to be healed. That's the sovereignty of God. All, all the people that have a problem with sovereignty, I don't get it because none of these three men asked to be healed. Jesus came to one. Peter and John came to the other. And now Paul goes to this guy. And isn't it interesting who are the people who do the healing? I mean, it's, it's now we see a Gentile, pagan Gentile. They're in Lystra. There's not even a synagogue that we know of that was in Lystra. 
It was a pagan rural area. Just idolaters. And here this guy's been lame from birth. So Paul, more than likely when he's speaking there, is just doing street preaching. And there's a lame guy there. A pagan Gentile. But you know what's interesting about all three men? They stood immediately. If you've had children or grandchildren, you watch them go through the stages, right? They go through the stages and they, they crawl. And then they get up and get wobbly and they're holding on to stuff and their brain has to figure out how to do that over time. The brain, it goes through transition and processes, right? Feedback. These men had never taken a step in their life. So not only was it a miracle about the muscles not that had been atrophied for all their life, the brain had never connected the dots to what it was like to take a step and walk. They, they all got up and started walking. That's, that's pretty amazing when you stop and think about what took place. They never figured it out. They just immediately started walking. And that's the way it is with you and me spiritually. See, I think the lameness is a good analogy for us. Because when we get healed, when we get healed, there's, there's no time period that you have to go through to learn it. When you get healed and He comes in and He touches your life, you immediately begin to walk with God. There's no, no process of trying to figure it out if you're healed. You don't have to wait and figure it out. It's immediate. If it's real. See, our problem in America is it's not real a lot of times. And people, Lori and I were talking about it before, the, the thing today, that people believe and they think to believe is to have a connection and walk with God. But what they do is they believe about God. They don't believe in God. They've not been healed by God. But the point of what this story in the text today is this, is that the grace of God shown to the Jews is now shown to Gentiles. And that's why it's here. The Jew can be saved to walk with God and so can the Gentile. It doesn't matter if he's from Lystra, Antioch, Athens, or Rome. There's no distinction. We all can experience the same grace. It doesn't matter how, how we failed. It doesn't matter how inept or weak we are. We can all be changed. Just like the guy. We're all lame from our mother's womb. We come into the world spiritually lame. We can't walk with God on our own. We, don't, we mess up our lives. We mess up our marriages. We mess up our families. We mess up our finances. We mess up everything because we're lame. <laughs> we mess it up. But it doesn't have to stay that way. And we see in Paul and Barnabas faithful men who continue to walk faithfully with God through hardship, through persecution, and a lot of trials. Now, What's interesting about this particular passage today is it contrasts an ancient myth with the reality of God. Myths are interesting things. They're, vain, they're all vain and futile things. They're not reality. But you know what myths reveal? Myths reveal Gentiles seeking God. 
That's really what a myth reveals. When, when I, I mean, when you look at every religion in the world, doesn't matter whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, whether it was what they believed, Zeus, you know, Zeus is our protector of our city, all the myths, God is the only reality. Right. All, fully, all other philosophies are merely replacements for Jesus and God. That's, they, they all are. And so our highest longing as humans is what? To be connected with God and it can only be found in Jesus. So when you think about it, every movie, I, I promise you, we can look at a movie and I can tell you in the movie, the redemptive element there, every movie has some kind of longing for purpose, meaning, redemption. In every movie, every novel, every story, every myth. It, it, it all is about uh, some kind of soul searching for redemption, purpose, and meaning. And so, but men, we have a way of always, we find something big and majestic and we worship that instead of the one who made it. Whatever it is. And so we create these religions. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in every man's heart. In every man's heart. So every man knows. And, and so in this passage, which is Paul, this is Paul's first recorded message to pagans in Acts. The second one is where? In Acts 17, to Mars Hill. Mars Hill, they're a little brainier. <laughs> they're the Epicureans. They're the Stoics. These guys are philosophers. They're a little higher up as far on the food chain as the guys here in Lystra. These are just idolaters. But Paul starts where they are, and we see in this passage, basically, he deals with them. And all pagan worldview, guys, all pagan worldviews can be boiled down to two things. One is a philosophy that comes from a finite mind. In other words, something finite can't define something infinite. You understand what I'm saying? All religions, all philosophies are designed by finite men. And they're ultimately going to fail because they're a finite mind trying to define something that's infinite or portray something that's infinite. That's the first thing. The second thing is idolatries that prefabricate something and they call it God. So they all can be boiled down to those two things. And so in this particular passage, when Paul and Barnabas, or really Paul, heals this guy. These people have grown up hearing a story about Zeus and Hermes, if they're Greek. If they're Roman, it's about Jupiter and Mercury. But those, Jupiter for the, uh, for the uh, Romans and, and Zeus for the Greek were the protectors of their cities. Wait a second, James. Sure. They were the protectors of the cities. Do you understand? In the same way you and I maybe look at God, they looked at Zeus and prayed to Zeus. He's our protector. And there was this story written by a guy named uh, Ovid, this, uh, Roman poet named Ovid. And he wrote about this uh, time that Zeus and Hermes came to earth to, to check on mankind, they disguised themselves. They went into this city called Phrygia. 
And Phrygia is in Turkey. So all these areas are around there. Cappadocia, Lystra, all the cities that we read about in Revelation, they're all in this area of Turkey, right? And so this area, every city would have known this story, and these people did. And what happened is Zeus and Hermes came in disguised as peasants. The city rejected them, except for one couple, Philemon and Bacchus, his wife Bacchus. So Philemon and Bacchus, this old couple, took them in. Hermes, they took Hermes and Zeus in and were kind to them. They let them stay with them. But nobody else in the city would do anything with them. They rejected them because they were dressed as peasants. And so what happened is Zeus granted Bacchus and, um, uh, Bacchus and Philemon honor and a wish. You can have whatever you want. And they said, well, we don't want to die apart. We want to stay together forever. So he said, well, you're going to be the priest and priestess of our temple here. And he turned them into intertwining trees. <laughs> into an eternal tree, basically. I don't know how that works out if I really want to be a tree forever. But that's what, but that's what he did with them. But you know what he did to the city? According to the myth and the legend? He destroyed everybody else in the city with a flood. Destroyed it all. And so that carried forth. So people knew that if Zeus and Hermes showed up again, they were going to treat them good. Because they didn't want to be destroyed. I'm not kidding. That's, that's exactly the backdrop for what's happening in this passage. And so Paul and Barnabas show up and heal a guy and they think it's Zeus and Hermes. So they're, they break out everything. They're throwing a party. They're going to sacrifice and treat them well. And that's what's going on here. And so, when you look at that, it, it just goes like I said. Men are always looking for God in the wrong places a lot of times. Because their finite minds, their finite minds can't fathom the... I'm talking about Gentiles here. Pagans, right? Um, because we all know that there was an ancient prophecy, right? But it's not a myth. The reality that the Creator God, their true Father, would send His Son. You know what Hermes means, by the way? Hermes means word or messenger. And there was a real Father, God the Creator, who sent His Son, the Word, the messenger. Remember? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that's the reality. And so what we're going to see today, myth meets reality, really. It's really interesting the way God brought this together. Because you remember, this was written to who? Theophilus. To talk, and the people of that time would understand that. We, we, didn't, we don't think about myths like that. Did you, had you ever heard of Ovid before today? Yeah. Have you ever heard that story? Yeah. I mean, that's just, we, we don't live there, right? Yeah. We don't live in that world. But that's what was going on. So as we look at this text today, there, there, I want to continue this idea about finishing faithful, but I want to give you four more characteristics we see in Paul through this text today that we can add. So we'll have a total of eight after we finish. The, the, the fifth one is that we see with His eyes, meaning God's eyes. We see with His eyes. The sixth one is we live for His glory. 
The seventh one is we share His message. And eight, we resist His enemy's attacks. And, and we're just going to see this in the life of Paul and Barnabas here as they are in Lystra. So we see with His eyes. We live for His glory. We share His message. And, and His, just bowl that, His message. And we resist His enemy's attacks. So if you've got a Bible, let's look at uh, verse 8 all the way to 20. I'm going to read it and we're going to come back and just make a couple of comments. Chapter 14. 14 verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In the past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet He did not leave Himself without witness. For He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. And verse 8, it says, this man was crippled from birth. He never walked before. Luke is a doctor and wanting to make sure we understand this guy has never taken a step. But notice what happens. It doesn't start with this guy getting up and walking. It starts with who? The messenger. And it says that Paul, he was listening to Paul first. It does start with the guy saying he was listening. He listened. There's a difference, though, between listening and shemaying. I think this guy was shemaying. I think he was focused. I've had the privilege of speaking at so many different variety of audiences, sometimes speaking to 5,000 people, sometimes speaking to five people. Teaching Sunday school in a, a room full of 15 and, and teaching to two or 300 men. 
But it doesn't matter whether it's 15 or 200. When I'm speaking and looking, I'm looking in the audience. I'm, I'm connecting with men as I'm speaking and people, children, women. It doesn't matter. I'm looking at them and hoping that there will be a connection. And I'll tell you, there are times when I'm teaching that I get the deer in the headlight looks. They freeze. People look at me like they don't have the foggiest clue of what I'm talking about. Like they can't even imagine what I'm talking about. It's it's so beyond the realm of their possibility when I'm talking about spiritual things. And it's sad and that's very hard because as you're speaking and trying to share, you you get really upset about it because you want them to understand. You want them to get it. And so sometimes in our humanness, we'll try to help them. We'll start, I'll start relating and going to analogies to try to get the point across. And you get frustrated. Yeah, you get frustrated. But this man was, he was so connected to Paul that Paul saw, and Luke records that it says, Paul looking intently at him. Do you look intently at the people around you? Are you so concerned about what you're going to say that you're not even noticing what's going on in their mind and in their life? So often, when we are out in the world, we we just fly right by opportunities to speak into people's life, to minister to people, to be a priest to people. Paul was looking intently at this guy. Saw he had what? It saw he had Faith to be, in some translations it says saved, some it says be made well. If it says be made well, he's not talking. That guy was not looking at Paul about walking. I can promise you that. This was a pagan man who grew up in a pagan culture worshiping idols who believed because his culture believed that he couldn't walk because he was cursed by the gods. He believed he had no value No value at all. And here's a guy telling him, there's hope for you, brother. There's hope. Jesus came to give you hope. And for the first time in his life, he realizes there might be somebody that actually values him. And he's looking at Paul with this look, and Paul says, get up! He just shouts it. He didn't shout it for the guy. He wanted everybody around to hear. This guy that you think is cursed, he has value. This guy that you think was dead and could do nothing, he's valuable. And God's going to show you how valuable he is. And he raised him up. He sprang up at that moment. And he began walking. Imagine those people that every day in the city looked at him. He's cursed. He's cursed. His parents did something. He did something. God's cursed him. And now, oh my gosh, he's he's walking. But you got to see with his eyes to finish faithful like Paul. Paul saw with the eyes of God. And we need to see with his eyes when we go in our world. Well, in verse 11, it says, the people, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up in their voices in Lyconium. So Paul more than likely didn't understand what they were saying because they were speaking in Lyconium. 
And more than likely, he didn't understand that. But he was... You, you can tell if people are kind of trying to give you something or do something for you or they're excited about you or whatever. Even, uh, even in Russia, there were times I were over there, I didn't understand the language, but I could tell what people wanted to do by the way they were acting. So these people are rushing on them. They're bringing garlands. The priest of Zeus is coming. They saw what Paul had done and they thought the gods were there, just like in the story. Paul, they thought, was Hermes because he was the chief speaker and Zeus, uh, Barnabas was Zeus. The priest brought sacrifices. And how did they respond to this? It says they tore their clothes. What does that mean? When, when, when would any Jew tear his clothes? Grief. Yes, he was so in anguish over whatever was going on. And 90% of the time, Jeff, it was because of blasphemy against God. Back in Matthew 26, when the chief priest is questioning Jesus, and he asked him a question, and Jesus said something that that priest perceived as blasphemous, he tore his vestments. He tore it. They said, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? We are men like you. We're finite. Well, I know it didn't, but what they, were, what, what they were focused on was they didn't want God's glory. They didn't want anybody thinking they were anything but men. They said, we are finite. We are like you. When it says, he says like here, he says, um, men, why are you doing this? We are also of men of like nature with you. We're, it's, we're just like you. Why are you bringing this stuff? Why? Because they weren't living for their glory. They were living for His glory. They, they were living for the glory of God. What a stark contrast to what we see in American churches today. In American Christianity today. Turn on the TV. It's, you just look at it and, and it's like, it's, it's who can be the best? And it's, it's all about me. And it's, it's easy to get to that place. Listen, when you start opening up God's Word and teaching His Word effectively, it changes people. And then you can start believing the press reports that it's you. And then some book publisher comes and whispers in your ear, man, you're awesome what you're doing. Would you write a book about this? Then you write one book, leads to two books, leads to ten books. And pretty soon... You can't even be approached by regular people anymore. You've got, a, you've got a publicist who handles your appointments. Does that sound like anything vaguely like Paul or Barnabas? No. These were men who didn't live for their glory. They lived for the glory of God. They rejected the world's fame, guys. False teachers want to be exalted. False teachers are in it for themselves. John 7.18 says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of Him who sent Him is true. That's reality. God's priest, His true priest, seek His glory. False prophets seek their own glory. 1 Peter 5 says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. James 4 says it this way, God opposes the proud, but what? Gives grace to the humble. Humility. Humility, humility. 
I was reminded of a story of uh, Josh McDowell I shared this morning. Josh, there's a big retreat center out in California called Arrowhead Springs. It's a huge, big, massive retreat center out there where all these ministries, they've had a lot of great speakers and retreats and conferences in there. And so Josh McDowell was at just this huge impact in youth ministry, speaking to thousands of young people across the, the country. He had you know, written some books and written stuff, and he was really having an impact. And Bill Bright called him and said, Hey, Josh, why don't you come work with Campus Crusade and take over college, college-age ministry, and start ministering to the college kids? And he said, Okay, I, you know, I, I, I'll do that, Bill. And he said, Oh, and why don't you get based out of Arrowhead Springs? You know, our conference center out there? And he goes, okay. And he says, oh, and we need a groundskeeper too because our groundskeeper quit and we've got to have somebody who kind of oversees everything out there. Would you mind doing that? And he goes, well, sure, I guess. And so he goes there and he finds out that all these conferences and come in and come they come in there and they do them they have lots and lots and lots of people cycling through you know what the primary role of the groundskeeper is to make sure the toilets stay working because with all those people coming through they get clogged all the time and that was what he spent the majority of his time doing making sure that all the to- toilets were working He had a set of bib overalls he put on and gloves and shoes and he just went and did his thing. This guy who's speaking to thousands and they're serving him. And so he continued to do that for a while and they were going to have this big conference out there with Billy Graham and with Luis Palau and some other people and Josh was going to be the featured speaker to all the college and under kids. I mean, they were expecting a huge crowd. And he was really excited to be on the same like platform with Billy Graham and, and Luis Palau. And a couple of days before, they had um, tarred the parking lot or put new asphalt down in the parking lot. And some guy walked through a no-walk zone because he was late and walked right over brand-new carpet that had been put down and tracked in the stuff. And Josh is there in his suit and tie. He's ready to go meet Billy and go back to the green room and go back where everybody is. And Bill grabs him and says, Josh, look at this. You got, we got to do something, man. This is, this is a brand new carpet. And he's like, well, what do you want me to do? I, I mean, I'm, I'm supposed to speak in a couple of hours and I was just going to... And he says, we got to take care of this. And so he said, okay. So he goes and puts on his overalls, and he gets down because he didn't know who else to get at that point. So he just starts scrubbing and getting it all up. Billy Graham walks right by him. Luis Palau walks right by him, and he's just the guy scrubbing the carpet. Nobody bothers to give him the time of day because he's just the guy scrubbing the carpet. And he said, I was so mad. I was so angry. I'm sitting there, and I did not want to be doing that. I didn't even want to be there. I didn't even want to be in ministry. I didn't even want to do that. And I go back after I finally get done, and I'm putting on my coat and tie, and I was so convicted because I had the image of my Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And if he can get the toe jam and the dirtiness off their feet, who am I 
to demand anything else. That's humility right there. And that's what God wants His servants to have. When you have humility, you're going to seek His glory. It's pride that causes us to look inward. And so we live for His glory. We see with His eyes. But we also share His message. In verse 15b, look at what Paul says. He says, listen, we bring you good news. That's that word euangelion, I mean. We bring you the euangelion that you should turn from these vain things. The word for vain there, you know what it means? No things. You turn from these no things, these things that have nothing in them. That's what it means, literally. Turn from the vain things, because idols are nothing, to a living God who made the earth and the sea. Paul says, we're like you. We're finite. God, the real God, is infinite. And in verse 16, he said, He allowed you to do this, yet He did not leave Himself without witness. He left a witness. He revealed Himself. In Romans 1, you see that, guys. People see creation and they're aware that there is a God. It doesn't tell them the Gospel, but they're aware that they're accountable to a God. And so Paul says there are three things here that are insufficient to find the truth about God. The real true God that we all see. One, he says, is you. (laughs) You you don't possess what it takes to find God. The one true God. Two, he says, me. Because I'm finite just like you. We're both finite. We can't get there on our own. Third, he says, idols. So none of us on our own. God has to come to us and reveal Himself to us. And he says that's what He does. The Greek and the Roman empires fell. You know why? Because their absolutes were they weren't sufficient. Because they were finite. Finite men created their absolutes. That's why our culture is going to fall. That's exactly why our philosophy is not going to work because what it is, we're building some kind of infinite worldview from a finite mind. Oh, a man can decide he wants to be a woman? Who says so? A woman says she can be a man? Who says so? You? Are you infinite? Two men can get married? Who says so? The Supreme Court? Is the Supreme Court made up of finite beings? Yes, I believe so. So me, I'm going to go with the infinite being and what he says. I don't want to go with finite. I want to go with infinite. If there's an infinite being, I want to know what he says. We cannot define truth. That's the problem. When people say, that's your truth, that's your truth. I want his truth. Well, what happened? Well, what happened is, it says even with what they were saying, they couldn't restrain them hardly. And then it says they stoned them. The Jews from Antioch uh, and from um, Iconium came down. They stirred up the people that were praising them. Now, end up stoning Paul. Now, here's what's crazy about that. The mob is always fickle, right? That's why Jesus didn't cater to the mobs. But... But the same people that were wanting to bring sacrifices get stirred up by these angry Jews. They stone Paul to the point where they think he's dead. Now, for him to be supposedly dead, I don't think he was moving. He might have been in shock. 
I don't know if you've ever been in intense pain, but when I was in the probably the most intense pain in my life, all I wanted to do is lay still and shut my eyes. I, di I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want anybody to touch me. I, I just wanted to lay there with my eyes shut. And I can imagine being hit with the stones, blood coming. He, he, he could have felt that. The dirt, all the nastiness of the stoning. He probably was in shock and either passed out or, or maybe he what? Maybe he died and God resurrected him. Either way, maybe that was the third heaven experience. That's what I was where, where he was in that moment, God let him go up there and said, No, you're not done yet, Paul. I'm sending you back and I'm going to really blow their minds. Watch this. Because they, the disciples, can you imagine that moment? The disciples come around and his eyes pop open and they're like, Oh my gosh, he's alive. And he, what does he do? Does he run? No. He goes right into the city. He goes back into the city. I love this guy, man. He goes right into the city. And when he goes in there, why? Because he's resisting the enemy attacks. The enemy attacked two ways here. First, with praise and pride. The second way was persecution and fear. And that's how he tends to attack us. If he, if he can't take you down with one, he'll sure try the other. Because he wants you out of the game. But it says he rose up and he went to Derby. You know, 2 Corinthians 1, Paul struggled. It says in 2 Corinthians 1, he despaired even of life. But if you read on a little further, it says, so that he would not depend on himself. So he would depend on God. Anybody Jewish in here? No? So nobody in this room can trace their roots back to. Sarah, we trace our roots, guys, back to the Tower of Babel. Didn't we all come from the Jews? No. 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 Yeah. And so, so here's the thing. We're here today because we heard the truth. We turned and was healed by Jesus. And we worship Jesus. We've turned from idols to the true living God. We've turned to the living God. And the living God is the only infinite being that can determine a standard. He's the only infinite being that, that, that can show what true love is. And He showed it in His Son, Jesus. And so we all have a choice to make what we're going to do with that. We can see with His eyes. We can live for His glory. We can share his message. But notice he shared it contextually with them. He didn't talk about Abraham with them. He didn't talk about uh, Jacob with them that we know of. What was recorded was he talked about creation. And so first 10 chapters of John, first 11 chapters of John, he shared with 10 different people, 10 different ways. Okay? It's not one cookie-cutter approach for everybody with the Gospel and the message of Jesus. He contextualized to the people he was with. You don't change the message but you make sure that you talk to them in a way they understand it. You share with them as you're led by the Spirit. And He shared His message and He resisted the attacks. And my prayer for you is that when we walk out those doors, that we will not let a finite world define our truth for us. That we won't let an ancient myth affect us. The only thing that directs us is His reality. Amen.
So Brad, will you close our time in prayer and then we'll open it up if anybody wants to. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we come before you with praise on our lips. Father, may we be these men who are walking with perseverance, speaking with passion, serving as priest, walking in the Spirit. Father, as we've seen in this text today, give us your eyes. Give us eyes to see those who are looking for hope. Help us to live for your glory and not our own. Yes. And Father, may your message be on our lips continuously. Mm -hmm. and we know that as we share your message, the enemy will attack us. Help us to resist the enemy. Yes. Help us to move on. Not get bogged down in it. Father, may we be reminded that it is for your glory, our good. Father, may we advance this message. May we be the ones with the good news. And may we speak boldly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Yeah.